in three, two, one. John, are we live? We're live, sir. We're live and with audio. We're live um, with audio. John and I usually do shout outs at the beginning of this thing, so we do big shout outs to, and John always one ups me on shout outs, but we're going to skip that today because <laughs> I am super, super. First of all, because he's going to one up me again and I hate being one up. <laughs> but also because we have an incredible guest on today. Um, he's a special guest. It's at a special time. And when John and I set out to do Wheelhouse, we wanted to bring everybody a show that was Chicago based. We would bring on Chicago business owners, influencers, entrepreneurs, and um, teach you about their uh, lessons, what they've learned, and um, just bring a show about Chicago. Today, it's an honor for John and I to have a guy who can actually impact a lot of change in Chicago. Uh, he's a father, he's a husband, he's a business owner. Uh, he's uh, been a law enforcement officer for, uh, I think, three decades, maybe a little bit longer. Um, he's an American hero. He was um, at Ground Zero during September 11th, and he's a politician running for mayor in the city of Chicago. In February, that is the biggest introduction I've given because he deserves it. Um, you did Garrett. great until you said politician, though. That's what <laughs> yeah. tell you, Mom. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Public is, servant. Public servant. There I you love go. it. Um, <laughs> Gary McCarthy's on the show with us today. Thank you so much for coming on. It really is an honor Thanks, for John bro. and I. Thank you. Um, Too kind. You know, I always ask everybody how they got into what their field was. And you were a law enforcement officer for a long time. What got you to want to be a uh, police officer? Uh, my dad was a police officer. Okay. <clears throat> uh, my oldest brother, I have uh, two brothers, six and five years older than me. My oldest brother uh, also became a New York State trooper. So I was raised in a, in a law enforcement, um, blue-collar family. My grandfather was a fireman. Uh, he unfortunately took the wrong turn. He was a police officer who became a fireman. <laughs> um, so we don't talk about him. But uh, Our good buddy Mike Cannon's actually watching. Yeah, Mike. Mike is out there. Mike has done a lot of great work for the campaign, and I can't thank him enough for everything that he's been doing. Um, but, yeah, I, I always wanted to be a police officer growing up. I you know, used to watch my dad come home from work and go to work and hear about all the things that he was doing, and I was fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, ironically, uh, typical of my parents were that World War II greatest generation. Uh, they lived through the Depression as kids. My dad uh, fought in the Pacific Theater as a Marine. He was at like five different battles, including Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal, two of wow. the biggest battles in World War II. Um, my mom was a registered nurse. Uh, so I come from a, from a <coughs> civil servant, uh, public servant background, and uh, those are the values that I was raised with. You know, public service is, is really, uh, you know, an honor for us. At least that's the way I feel, and I know my brothers feel the same way. Um, and my parents set an incredible example for us, really just hardworking, kept their nose to the grindstone, and just made sure that we got everything that they could afford to give us. And uh, they expected us to all do better than they did. Um, so I was lined up to go to law school when I graduated college, and unfortunately I didn't have the money, of course. So I said, great, I'll just go on the NYPD and I'll get a scholarship to law school. And next thing I knew, I was running New York's crime strategy. <laughs> and I'm on my way to Newark and then Chicago. I don't know where I, I missed the turn, but... Uh, it's been quite a run. Well, you made the right choice. I went to law school. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's incredible to watch your growth as a law enforcement officer. Obviously, you started, in, like you said, in New York City. And then you became, I believe, the deputy commissioner of operations there. Correct. You were at Ground Zero uh, right. September 11th. And then ran the police department in Newark. 
yeah. and then superintendent in Chicago. And one of the uh, big questions, and typically we don't reach out to our uh, viewers and ask them to ask questions of our guests. We just do it and I'll be watching and uh, some people might ask questions live. But the big topic that everybody talked about was crime in Chicago. And um, we can say this, there's not another candidate running that has your experience in crime, not even close to it in crime control. Um, I'll let you touch on some things that you want to do to help you know, uh, fix the crime problem in Chicago. I had just said, you know, I was on vacation in Tahiti and it was, this was, this really hit home for me. My scuba diving instructor and his wife said, you know, we want to come to Chicago, but we heard it's dangerous and it sucked to hear, you know, yeah. you, you love your city and someone halfway around the world saying they won't come to an amazing city because they think it's dangerous now. So I'll let you take the floor on. So on the, crime topic. Uh, uh, the, the other thing that, that you need to realize the, the, position of Deputy Commissioner of Operations uh, put me in charge of New York City's crime strategy for seven years. Um, it was an unbelievable experience, uh, totally in the right place at the right time, and I, and I got to take advantage of some breaks that I got in my career. Um, but that experience of running that crime strategy for New York, uh, we wrote the book on how to reduce crime. I mean, New York City last year had 290 murders in a city that's three times the size of Chicago. It's crazy. In, in 1990, there were 2,245 people murdered in New York City, and last year, 290. Uh, that's a pretty significant reduction. Um, and it didn't happen by accident, and it didn't happen overnight. Uh, there's been a very steady decline in, in crime in New York City based upon the policies and practices that we created, we implemented, and are being replicated across the country. Um, we refined that handbook. I actually took it to Newark, where we were very successful. I, I, <laughs> I recently read a book, uh, uh, ironically, uh, the name of the book is uh, The Short But Tragic Life of Robert Peace. And, and Robert Peace was a young man, an African-American uh, young man who grew up just outside of Newark and Ironically, he got a scholarship, full scholarship, to go to Yale. He was a very intelligent guy, uh, but he was dealing uh, weed the whole time. Went back to Newark and ended up getting murdered on the day that I got sworn in as a superintendent here in Chicago. Uh, it was really, really odd to see. But the, the point I'm making is when I read this book, in the middle of it, there's about three pages talking about all of Cory Booker's achievements in reducing crime. And I, you know, I'm flipping through the pages waiting for my name and it just didn't, <laughs> it just didn't appear. So, uh, but that's the nature of the game. But that, that playbook that worked in New York, that worked in Newark, we brought here to Chicago and refined it yet again because Chicago's violence is more about gangs than New York and Newark. Interesting. Um, in New York and Newark, it's more about drug gangs, not all the various gangs that we hear here. I don't want to even mention their names to give them any, any sort of credit, but um, they shoot each other because they're on the other team. And my dad was a gangster, your dad was a gangster, and John's dad was a gangster, and you know our children are going to be gangsters, and we're always going to be on other teams, and therefore we're going to be at war. So we refined those strategies that we created in <clears throat> New York, and lo and behold, here during my tenure, we had uh, 2013 and 2014, we had the lowest murder rates here since 1965. It's incredible. And uh, it didn't happen by accident. An awful lot of hard work by the men and women in the Chicago Police Department. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, the politics of Chicago have hit 
that uh, we reverse course. And after I was separated from my position, that's the way I like to put it, um, <laughs> uh, the murder rate went up by almost 80% in yeah. 2016. So when you, when you hear people talking about how the murder rate is down, they're comparing it to like one of the worst years we've ever had, 770 murders in 2016. So just a little bit more uh, point of view is that those 770 murders in a city one-third the size of New York City uh, means that we had more than 2,200 murders per capita compared to New York City, which was where we were in New York 28 years ago during the height of the crack epidemic. So it's absolutely unacceptable uh, that that happens here, and it's because we, we do it to ourselves, literally. Um, you see it time and again. Uh, a couple of my predecessors, like Phil Klein, was doing a great job, and he got fired over a political scandal. Um, and, you know, we haven't been able to get our traction until 2013, 2014, and then we lost it yet again. And New York, by the way, is not immune to the dynamics that happened here in Chicago. I mean, obviously, the Laquan McDonald incident turned, you know, the world upside down here in Chicago. Well, New York City had the quote-unquote illegal chokehold death of Eric Garner. Right. But they didn't reverse course. They didn't fire Bill Bratton, the police commissioner. They refined their policies. They did their investigations, and they moved forward with the city. We stopped on a dime. Right. And look at where we are today. We, you know, I'm hopeful that we don't have three cops shot in three days, but over the last two days, uh, we had two police officers shot. And, and I believe that we're reaching a state of lawlessness. There's no place in the city that we could call safe. Um, we hear shots fired on the street here, where we are on Ontario Street. I've um, heard them in Streeterville. Yeah. Yeah, all over, there's no place. Right. Michigan Avenue, Water Tower, you name it. And uh, that's a result of the politics of Chicago. It's a lack of recognition of what's going on. It's a lack of recognition of the social economic divide that exists certainly in this city and in other places in the country uh, that needs to be addressed, and it's not being addressed. So our platform uh, is pretty wide. It's, it's not a one-trick pony. We're not just talking about crime. But crime, obviously, is the number one thing that has to change before the city can move forward. Uh, completely agree. And like I said at the top of this, you know, it, like you said, it's no accident that everywhere you've gone, crime has been reduced. And, and it is a shame that it was on a path of getting better and better and better, and now it's dramatically gone worse. So you got to bring it back to where it was and then approve from there. So uh, very hopeful that you have the opportunity to do that. Well, what I want to tell you, though, Mo, is it's not, it, it is definitely complicated, but I could tell you this. It's written down. <laughs> we wrote the actual playbook, and right. I could give it to you, I could give it to John, and you guys could go execute it, and if you execute it, you'll reduce crime. But we just have to have the political will and the moxie to actually do it. Right. To, to call things what they are, to stand up for what's right, Stop kowtowing to, to the loudest voices in the city and bring people to the table and have rational conversations. Do you believe that, um, and, and I'm almost leading this because I, I believe it in a sense, do you believe that the issues we have with the Chicago public schools and the loss of funding, especially in neighborhoods that really, really need it, are further affecting the crime rates? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's the, the elevator speech. We, we've been losing population in this city. Um, because of gun violence and high taxes. Because we're losing population, we're losing our tax base. Because we're losing our tax base, everybody who lives here has to pay more taxes. Right. On top of that, because we're losing our tax base, we're closing schools and pulling social services from the neighborhoods that need them the most, 
and that's causing more gun violence. So yeah. it's a vicious cycle. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's um, I'm, the more and more we're involved, at least in our office, or John and I get involved with Chicago, we're starting to see that neighborhoods that probably needed the most are also the hardest hit with schools closing down. Um, anything else you want to elaborate on the schools? I know you had the smart program. I read about it a little bit on your site. Um, do you find that that's prop getting the after school programs or getting programs and uh, reopening schools or more funding to schools is, is an answer? It, it's part create. of the answer, but, but I also think that we have to, uh, give people the opportunity. Not everybody's going to go to college, right? right? And some of us who go to college don't do anything with their degrees. For instance, me, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was, I was on track supposedly to go to law school and, you know, I took a civil service test, became a police officer. And it turns out that eventually there were education requirements in the NYPD, like just about every other police department across the country. And I had college out of the way so I could move forward with my career. But by the same token, not everybody's going to go to college. And sometimes you go to college and you end up driving a taxi or an Uber or, or doing sure. some sort of you know, bartender, who, who knows what it is. Um, so we have to come up with alternatives. And I think we have to bring back the vocational schools. We have to teach people a trade. And by teaching people a trade, and I'm talking particularly about the South and the West Side where there's hopelessness, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a couple of folks out to Englewood in a couple of weeks, people who have never been there, and people who can probably have a financial impact on that neighborhood because they work for a very large company. Um, <clears throat> to show them there's a palpable uh, sense of despair on the streets there, you could feel it. Yeah. Um, but, but create those workforces through the trade schools, the vocational schools, including technology, by the way. I'm, you know, it's not just carpentry and electricians and, and plumbing, auto repair mechanics. And give small businesses uh, tax credits to go to those locations or start up small uh, businesses in those neighborhoods to, to um, have jobs for the individuals for that trained workforce that we're now creating. And then at the same time, with all the abandoned properties that are out there, we can assume those, instead of selling lots for a dollar, right. we can assume those, rehab those buildings with that newly formed workforce, and create affordable housing for people. That's a great plan. So I, I'm looking at the fact that all those issues are interrelated. You can't separate the gun violence from the taxes and the education system. They were all interrelated. And, and the other thing that the method we're going to use to fix it is performance-based government, business management of government, just like we started doing in policing across this country, which has changed the face of policing. Uh, it's not going to be politics as usual here in Chicago. Uh, I'm getting tired of making the joke about the Chicago way. The Chicago way is what's holding us back. Right. That doesn't work right now. Yeah. It, it hasn't you know, worked for a long time. And, and you know, I love those business maxims. And one of my favorites that I know my guys are tired of hearing me say is, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Yeah. So every, every demographic in the city that I've spoken to has said that we need change. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you, you know, straight, LGBTQ, even Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> even Republicans say that we need change. So, you know, you, you touched on Inglewood and I, it hit on a story a year ago. We were uh, the Chicago Association of Realtors. We had a board and we decided we were going to donate some time and money to a charity called Old Chicago. They were taking um, folks that were homeless, finding them homes, training them to have resumes and get, get jobs. And so we built furniture 
um, and we delivered the furniture. One of my delivery routes was in Inglewood. And as I was walking in, um, a gentleman on a bike stopped me. He said, what are you guys doing here? Can I help move stuff in? The moving company said, well, we can't have him help because we have insurance. So uh, gave him a little bit of money and then he started talking to me and he said, do you have any ability to impact change in Chicago? And I said, me personally, probably not. And I said, why are you asking? And he said, because I've gone to my aldermen's and I've tried to go to politicians and not a single person will talk to me. And the only thing that I've asked is that garbage cans be put on the corners more than they are in our neighborhoods. He said, if you go down Michigan Avenue, there's garbage cans everywhere. I'll never forget this. And he said, you know, our neighborhoods are so ugly and kids just throw trash on the street. But if there was a garbage can in front of you, you're more likely to put it in there instead of throwing it on the street. And it was a twofold thing for me. I said, you know, what a simple, brilliant idea, but also what a sad thing that this guy, and he said, he said, my, I've moved my kid out of this neighborhood, but my mom still lives here. And I, I bike over to see my mom every day. And he said, I just wish that the neighborhood was looked after, but nobody would talk to this guy. And it was a sad thing to see that he really wanted to impact change, but not a single politician would talk to him. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of folks out there who I think are in trouble as far as aldermen go. Uh, the powers that be of the past are not the powers that be of the future in Chicago. That's really what I think. Um, I, and, and, you know, just talking about politicians, I, I just got to get this one in because it absolutely <laughs> drives me nuts that after the mayor dropped from the race, suddenly everybody wanted to play in the game. Yeah. You know, LeBron's not playing tonight, so I'll play. Right. Right? Think about that. And anybody who jumped into this race after the mayor dropped is not doing it for the right reason. First of all, if they didn't have the uh, (laughs) moxie to stand up to him, how are they going to make tough decisions on behalf of Chicago? Because there's some really tough decisions that are going to have to be made. Um and, and, you know, somebody recently, and I, and I said it jokingly before, but I actually mean it, uh, what, what separates me from the crowd, and people ask me this all the time, is the fact that I'm a public servant. I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm not a politician. I haven't been a part of the problems that were created here, and therefore I can see the solutions more clearly than anybody else. Right. And, uh, y- you know, it's just beyond comprehension to me that we have elected officials running for two offices at the same time. Um, you know, you got <laughs> the county board president is also the chair of the Democratic Party of Cook County, and she's using that leverage to get people to back her. I mean, this has got to be terrifying for the people of Chicago. It should be. Because uh, we're either going to succeed or we're going to fail. And, you know, I, maybe I'm too dramatic here, but I, I think that the, you know, we always talk about the future of a city during an election. But in this case, I think the future of Chicago really hangs on what we do. Right. And I think it's hanging on a thin thread at this point. It's getting worse and worse. I feel like Wiley Coyote with that last piece of brush hanging over the edge of the precipice, right? Um, It's it's going, currently it's going in a direction that's getting worse and worse. And I think it's exponential. You know, when things get bad, they get worse. And like you said, everything's interconnected. You know, the taxes affect, the schooling affects, the crime rate. And none of it is getting better. It, right. It's not like a, one piece is getting a little bit better. Everything's going towards that cliff in, right. in a really bad way. And the city does need a dramatic change. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, it's refreshing that you brought it up because, and, it's, and I think it's a good point. By the way, that idea with the garbage cans, that's something that I actually have talked about in the past. Really? If there's no place to put the trash, you're going to throw it on the ground. On the ground. That's exactly what he said. Simple. And actually, I've also seen people right next to a trash can drop stuff on the ground. Those people are... And that's one of my pet peeves. Those those people are a-holes. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) no doubt about it. But you know what? That's 
I, I see this in everything that happens in Chicago, whether I'm looking at CTA buses on LaSalle Street or, or running down LaSalle back to back to back, like four double buses, all on the same line. How did that happen? Right? Why are they doing that? And there's four people on each bus. Um, efficiency. Who makes decisions to uh, tear up streets at what times? You know, we talked earlier about the fact that they, they took down the, they're taking down the bridge on Chicago Avenue, and now right here in River North, it's virtually impossible to get onto Kingsbury, to get onto Green, to go into the West Loop. So, I, I, you know, I, I just don't see any planning. I don't see anything being managed here. And I haven't heard anybody talk about managing except for me. Yeah. Lack of strategy. I mean, like you said, you got to take a business management approach to a lot of these things. Yep. And you're right. It's a, it's a very political approach that lacks, I almost want to say common sense. I mean, I feel like a lot of the I, problem, I will say common sense. Yeah, common yeah, sense. It lacks common sense. And, and it's sad. I feel like politics has gone away in general where that's where it is. You, you've forgotten that a little bit of common sense, if you set aside just being a politician, can solve most of our problems yeah and the city's gone away from it but i think when you touched on the fact and and i was talking to somebody about this um a couple of days ago when i was talking about you coming on and they said wow when rom dropped out so many people jumped in and i agree i think you know you from go said you're going to run against this guy because you don't like what he's doing in the city of chicago and you're going to run against them heads up and all of a sudden he drops out and then everybody else decides okay yeah. Like, maybe I'll try to make a run at this. And again, for, and, and it's, for different it's reasons. For, it's for themselves. Right. I mean, if they were interested in solving Chicago's problems, they would have been in this thing from the beginning. From go. They're doing it to hang another shingle on their wall. I completely, completely agree. Um, so hopefully they uh, don't get to hang too many shingles. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple things that people were asking, you know, and they're specific, I guess, the finance. When I know John's passionate about this one. I'm passionate about the construction one because I drive a lot, so that always pisses me off when a road's torn up, but that's me just being pissed off that I drive a lot. John, uh, I know, is a question he wanted, you know, um, smart financial decisions for the uh, city going uh, forward. You know, the parking meters was was John's big thing. And, um, you know, parking, and John, you can jump in and, you know, talk about it a little bit, but I think if I paraphrase a bit, you know, some people have to come to the city and spend $16 for two hours, and then the city's lost their rights to all these parking spaces, and it was not the best decision, we think. Um, going forward, what would you do with some of those poor decisions that the city's made? I mean, can some of them be unraveled? Can they not? I, I think that some of them can be unraveled, you know, and, and <laughs> one of the things that I do like about Chicago is, is the audacity that we have. Um, tearing up Miggs Field, you know. <laughs> I mean, that 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 took audacity to to do that, and I think that we're going to have to make bold decisions and and make things happen. You know, I I see problems in in so many different areas, but as far as the bad decisions go, um, you know, we don't have to go further down those roads. One of the, one of the things that I was talking to the press about a couple of days ago, they called me because. The mayor's trying to ram home this $95 million police academy. And first of all, uh, it's not going to cost $95 million. Of course, nothing gets done on time and on budget in Chicago. Never. It's going to cost $180 million in my estimation. Um, second of all, I don't think we need a new police academy. The one that we have actually is adequate. If we need more training opportunities, there's cheaper and better ways to do it than creating this monstrosity of a training center. Third of all, the facility does not do the training. The trainers do the training right. with the training uh, uh, plan. So 
<laughs> the actual facility would be nice, but it's not something that we need. And then, I mean, I don't even want to go into the DOJ report. We don't have enough time here. But I, I see that I constantly hear, well, that's the Obama administration's DOJ report recommendation. So what? Um, look, the, the things that happened to policing over the last 10 years have been unconscionable. Um, officers end up making mistakes and they need to be prosecuted where appropriate and disciplined where appropriate also. But at the same time, you can't just flush policing down the train right. and expect that we're going to keep moving forward. Um, so we, we've got a really fish or cut bait here. The, yeah. the direction we're going in is horrible. We're, we're reaching a state of lawlessness. Um, police officers being shot on a daily basis. Um, police departments violating the law by marching onto the Dan Ryan. Yeah. And the city actually facilitating illegal activity by shutting down Lakeshore Drive so protesters can march onto Lakeshore Drive. Never That's in a crazy. million years during my tenure would that have occurred. Never. Never. And, and if you watched what happened that day, the protesters were protesting and then they made, you know, a right or a left turn towards the officers. And the officers just, you know, they did a matador and stepped aside and let them walk onto the highway. Yeah. I, where does it stop? Right. Where does it stop? So I, I think that we're in, in a lawless state right now and, and that has to reverse before anything can change in this city. Yeah, it but has somebody's got to have the audacity right. to step up and do that. And I challenge you to look at my opponents and tell me who's going to do that. Well, I don't think any of your opponents <clears throat> have, uh, I would say, a millionth of your experience and expertise when it comes to figuring out crime and figuring out how to resolve that. And I think you're correct in that most of them probably wouldn't have the audacity to, to tackle it the way it needs to be tackled. And one of the questions that kept popping up, you know, I have John and I both, as we mentioned off air, we have a lot of friends that are uh, law enforcement officers, so it's very near and dear to us. Um, and I had a couple people said, you know, the relationship obviously between um, a lot of folks and law enforcement is starting to get to a point where uh, it's boiling over, you know. And like you said, you know, I think uh, – majority of my friends that are officers they say we want to just take care of everybody we want to go home we got families we're not out there you know at our salaries to try to do anything awful and that's the majority of folks in any profession and of course there's going to be a person or two people that are um you know uh are not that way but the relationship has got to a point where uh you know people don't respect police officers and the relationship needs to be mended in a way, you know, any sort of, and I read that, you know, and I listened to a couple of your articles and your interviews where you said, you know, you want to go to neighborhoods and you want to talk to people and try to figure out, you know, what it is you can do to help, you know, the relationships get better. Any way to tackle that? Because I, I, I see it all the time. I see it on, you see it on social media, well, people going yeah. back and forth. And I mean, I just, so the first thing that, that, I need to say about that is that that's not a Chicago-centric problem. That's no. a national issue. So no. why are these other cities doing better than us when they have the same problem? Because they're approaching it in a different fashion. You know, if, if, if you take a look at, at what we did during my tenure as superintendent, we not only reduced the murder rate, but we reduced complaints against officers, police-related shootings. Uh, we reduced the number of arrests that we made by serious numbers, like 20,000 a year, yet we got 23% more guns off the street. That's all a result of programs that we put in place, supervision, training, beat integrity, community policing, and you know, you can police constitutionally and get the same results. 
So this idea that you know we have to violate the law to violate people's rights to, to get crime down is nonsense, it's simply not true. Um, and when issues happen, they need to be addressed. But you don't just stop doing what you're doing. And um, to mend that relationship, we have to have some very serious conversations. Because I, I want to point out that certainly our polling reflects something that I already knew, which is it's not just that people don't trust the police, it's that people don't trust government. Right. And especially here in Chicago, because they're accustomed to being lied to. They're accustomed to it. You know, um, my wife, who's, who's from Chicago, uh, constantly tells me, Gary, you know, why are you so adamant about this? Because it's never going to change. And I say it's never going to change until somebody changes it. Right. And we have to have some very serious, difficult discussions about race. We have to speak about the past. I'm a big history buff. To I'm a figure minor out in history, I am too. Yeah, I was a, I was a history major in college, oh. so uh, we have to know where we came from to know where we're going. Right, and we have to talk about the the experience of African Americans in this city and in this country, and how we got to this point before we could figure out paths to move forward. And and one of the things that I talk about frequently, and and when I have this conversation on the South and the West Side, people say to me, nobody who looks like you has ever spoken to us like this. Because I'm willing to talk about race. We have to. Have to it, right. But everybody's afraid to talk about it. But if we don't have the conversation, we're never going to move forward. And, and one of the things that I point out is that the history here has it, you know, segregation, redlining. We're the most segregated city in the country. But then we insist on it, don't we? We want black officers in black neighborhoods, Hispanic officers in Hispanic neighborhoods, and white officers in white neighborhoods. And we're never going to get over the race issue until we have exposure. And, and one of the things that I did was I sent a white commander to Englewood, and there were protests when he got there. Small group of people protested because I put a, a white man in, in a black neighborhood. Um, they also protested when we took him out because he was doing such a great job that they wanted him to stay. <laughs> they wanted him there. And then by the same token, I put an African-American north of Division Street probably for the first time in the, in the history of the city as a commander. Uh, and that man led the city in crime reduction in his district. And the people there absolutely adored him. So those are examples of the way we need to do things. We, you know, I, I grew up in a multicultural neighborhood. I actually can speak Spanish. Um, I'd have to practice again. Un poquito. Puedo hablar español. Soy nacido en el Bronx. Se necesita hablar español allí. Better than um, me and you, John. But the, but the bottom line is, um, it, my exposure to different cultures had it that I'm unaffected by race. And, and it's so powerful here, the issue of race, that we've got we've to address it, period. And, and that is going to start building trust when there's recognition by individuals that we know how we got here. And it's got to stop the polarization so that we can all move the city forward. I love it. And I, I'm 100% in agreement. I think the, one of the worst ways to tackle the problem is to just not talk about it. And right. it, like you said, it has to be talked about. And again, it comes down to, I think the reoccurring theme is you, you have the, we've been saying it, it's the audacity, but you have the, um, that's that the, nice almost, yeah, the nice word. The nice word. Yeah. I, but <laughs> you have the audacity <laughs> to go ahead and do those things. And, and I think that it's going to require the big change that you, you know, you keep talking about because it's like we said, it's a, it's a, multi-front attack on all these problems and um 
again, I'm very, very hopeful that uh, everybody listening and, you know, everywhere you go, people start getting on the bandwagon that we need change because the city's going in a bad direction. You're willing to give a whole lot of change to the city. John, do you have any questions? Because I have a couple that are coming in from people. I'm getting texted and anything you want to no, ask? No, no math, please. Yeah, no, <laughs> none for me either. I do, actually. Uh, give me one quick second. Uh, people are, I'm getting blown up. I, you have a lot of fans, I'm by the way, Gary. Feed coming in, absolutely. No, that's good. Um, one of the things that I was asked a lot about with uh, J.B. Pritzker uh, just being elected governor, uh, if you have a relationship with him, uh, if so, good, bad, and different, can you work together if you become the mayor of Chicago? And, uh, uh, and just a second up on that so that I don't have to keep interrupting, same thing with Madigan, Mike Madigan. So uh, as far as the governor is concerned, I've met him a few times. We really don't know each other. Okay. Um, but I can tell you that I have a history of be being able to work with anybody. Um, and, and here's an invitation that, I, that I've been saying publicly that I'll repeat again here, is that in my administration, everybody who has the best interests of Chicago will be welcomed at the table, whether you're friend or foe. And, you know, obviously there are people here who I've clashed with. Sure. Um, and I'm fine with that. You know, because I'm proud of my friends and sometimes I'm more proud of my enemies. But um, anybody who has the, the, the intention of serving the city, I'll work with. And, and I think that, you know, with, with the governor's relationship here in Chicago and even Mr. Madigan's relationship here in Chicago, uh, we, can, we can start to move this city forward. Nobody's ever tried to, quote unquote, unite the tribes. Right. I, I don't think that it's ever been tried here because it's been tribal warfare. Sure. And, and I think that the future has it that somebody, you know, and being a big history buff, I think it was King Kamehameha in Hawaii who united the tribes, which created the Hawaiian Empire back in the day. And, uh, you know, somebody has to step up and do that and end the polarization and the tribal warfare of, hey, I'm the big dog now. Everybody who's not with me is out. Mm. Um, we've got we've to do that if we're going to get this this place back in order very good those were yours those were the two people that that people really wanted to know as far as uh working together what what history if any you have with them yeah very little with, okay. with either one of them all right what um i got a i got a question for him and it's more my question um you know what made you because it's a big life change and you have a, a family to run for um for, for the office of mayor and it's a it's going to be a very busy time for you what was it a series of things was it um just the bad state of affairs in chicago what made you want to be and i'm not going to say politician a uh, public servant um in that capacity as mayor of chicago what was it that interesting and, and that's a i love answering this question because it's it really gives me an opportunity to, to open up about something um i've lived a charmed life i think i've never chosen my path my path has always chosen for me. Uh, call it God, call it karma, call it zeitgeist, whatever you, whatever you believe in. Um, these things keep happening to me. And in this case, you know, when I, get, when I became a police officer in 1981 in the Bronx, New York, never did I ever in a million years think that I would get to the top of the NYPD, uh, have an impact on, on that organization the way I did, go to a, a major city like Newark and then come here and run the second largest police department in the country. Never in a million years would I have dreamed that. Just like never in a million years would I have dreamed that I would run for elected office. 
Um, starting about two years ago, people came to me and asked me if I was interested in running for office, and I turned them down. I was like, no, I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm a public servant. I have no interest in that. You know, I'm, I'm Irish, I'm a linebacker, and I'm a Taurus. Right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I could be a little bit dense, and, I, and I'm not willing to compromise on a lot of principled issues. I dig in my heels on, on small issues sometimes. Sometimes to my detriment. Maybe I have to stop doing that sometimes. But... Um, they, they kept coming back, and every time they came back, they brought more people with them. And eventually, my public service DNA got to me, and I was considering it when Paul Bauer got killed. And, you know, I, I, I told Erin, and, and I asked her if she would be okay with me telling people publicly that it was the death of Paul Bauer that pushed me to the point where I can no longer stand on the sidelines and watch what's happening here. Um, I have a two-year-old son, uh, my wife, myself, my son live here, and I can't allow him to grow up in this environment. And when you have a high-ranking police official get murdered on state property in the shadow of City Hall by a four-time convicted felon wearing body armor and an extended magazine in his gun um, at, what, 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the, in the downtown business district of Chicago, man, do we have a problem. Yeah. And that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, it took everything in me not to, like, come out publicly at that point. I had to wait a couple of weeks because it would not have been the right thing to do. Right. But it was a very emotional decision for me. And that's what it came down to. And quite frankly, I'm having a lot of fun. I love talking to people. You know, it, it, when, when they changed the way we did policing in New York... I didn't know that one of my skill sets was looking at a problem, unpacking it, and put it back together and make it work better. Yeah. And the other thing is I'm a manager uh, since 1985, and I've been at the top of city government in three major cities in this country for 17 years. So, you know, I love when people try and, you know, push me into a corner and say I'm a one-trick pony. Well, nonsense. I've managed large, diverse organizations. I've managed billion dollar budgets so um, the skill set goes a little bit beyond uh, simply locking up criminals which by the way is one of my favorite things to do in the world and you do it really well <laughs> you know it, it, you're correct in the sense that you're it's somebody says it's a one-trick pony type thing you're forget it even just in law enforcement New York is very different than New York is different than Chicago you've been successful on three different fronts in very major places that at the time when you came in need a dramatic change um, so that sort of management I think can sidestep itself into any aspect of Chicago it can be the schools that sort of um, taking a global look at the problem and like you said packaging it up as yeah. a completely different thing yeah. Every aspect, all, all the aspects we touched on that are problems in Chicago can be touched on that way. You know, you, you and, and, and just to, just to put a point on that, um, the NYPD sent us to Columbia University School of Business to learn business management. Interesting. When we were changing the way that we did business, so you know, not only was I was I in the middle of a cultural change of a really large uh, organization, which you know, the larger the organization, the harder it is to turn that ship. Um, we got the education all at the same time, so. That's interesting, you know, and you touched on um, Mr. Uh, Ballard's um, uh, murder. Bauer. Bauer, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, the Mercy Hospital incident that happened a couple of days ago, uh, shout out to my uh, good friend, Dr. Moon, who's a, um, he's a physician in that ER, and he had just got off of his shift, so he had just gone home. And he had another 
a gentleman who decides, I don't want to even call him a gentleman, a, a convict or a guy who had uh, previously threatened to shoot up a firehouse, um, was carrying a gun, walked in there, killed a police officer, killed a 24-year-old getting off of an elevator, and then a, a doctor. It's a, It really is, as you said, a lawless and um, sad state of affairs in the city of Chicago. So I'm extremely excited to have somebody like you running who will have the um, the ability and the, um, the moxie to go after that sort of thing. See, but the problem is, Mo, um, you know, that that incident is an outlier. It's, a, it's an obvious, terrible tragedy, just like any loss of life is. Sure. You know, and if a police officer has to take somebody's life, it's still a tragedy. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, four people killed, um, including a police officer. I mean, we have four people killed every day or two here in Chicago. You know, we, we have not suffered the mass shootings like other places like Columbine and Sandy Hook and you, you name it, right? right. Um, this is probably the first one that we have uh, in certainly my knowledge. And that's an outlier. The ongoing drumbeat of crime and violence in this city is overwhelming. And, you know, it, it's terrible that incidents like this have to happen and come to the forefront to really focus attention on something that we really need to pay a lot more attention to. And it's certainly not going to change on a national level. But, you know, I'm a big believer in we have to help ourselves first before we look to anybody else to help us. And uh, Chicago needs help. And it starts with changing the leadership here in the city and the way that, that we do things. Well, like I said, I'm very, very excited and very hopeful that um, this people of the city of Chicago... Um, you know, get out, they vote, they uh, vote for you. Um, I think you're the man who's going to make a very impactful change on the city. And again, you know, you touched on, you said you never planned on going from just being a police officer to running New York and then running New York and running here. You've had a history of success to the highest level in everything you've done. And I'm a firm believer, and we've talked about this on the show before, when you've had other people here who've had one successful business and then they go on and they do another successful business, the likelihood that they're going to be successful in the next thing they do is very, very high because they have a history of success and you've done that. Um, John, I know you, you pointed at yourself like you were going to ask a question because I was going to lead into what Gary likes to do in his free time, in his days. How does he structure himself? Because he's got a lot going on, but you pointed like you have a question. So I do, I do actually. Shoot. I've, I've got two. I've got one from a gentleman named Nick. Nick, I'm not going to try and pronounce the last name. Oh, holy smokes. That's quite a name. Yes. Um, but he says, I'm a firefighter, and he would like to know your view on the city pension debacle. He's Mike Cannon's firehouse, by the way. Yeah. So the, the short story is this. Um, we have to get the city into the black. We have to stop political spending before we can ever address the impending issue of the pension. Um, there's going to have to be some change, unfortunately. Uh, we're going to have to really think out of the box as to how we're going to preserve the pensions that are already out there and fix it moving forward. But we, you know, we can't even think about that. Um, I know we have to, but what I'm saying is we have to get our books in order in the first place before we can even consider catching up to things like the pension crisis, which obviously needs to be done. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to have all the answers for that. I haven't heard anybody who has all the answers for that. Some people are talking about restructuring. Some people are talking about uh, eliminating pensions and moving into 401ks, moving forward, things of that nature. Um, all of, all, you know, everything will be in play. And 
I will not just hire an MBA to run our finances. I will get an economist who will help us kind of navigate the long-term solutions for what we need to do here. Um, we've got a very good platform as far as our finances are concerned that we're actually going to put out probably in the next week or two, right, Justin? Um, that, that uh, you know, we've, we've run it through all its checks and balances. We've gone to various uh, experts, and they've looked at it, and they've given it the thumbs up. So Excellent. we're pretty excited about that. It's not going to solve everything, but at the end of the day, right. um, you know, somebody's got to address this, and the only way that we're going to get ourselves out of the debt we're in is to stop the political spending and start doing needs-based spending. And I'm talking about things like the police academy. I'm talking about things like investing another $10 million in a river walk, which is pretty darn nice the way it is. That's really yes. nice. I don't, I don't <laughs> think we need $10 right. million more dollars. Or even the Navy Pier flyover, which is a bike path, which is great, but it was budgeted for $30 million. It's up to 62 plus million dollars, and it's not open. I, no. I used, so I lived in Streeterville, and I used to run down Lakeshore, and I used to bike down Lakeshore every single day. And I'm going to go on record and saying that thing was, it's beautiful, but I don't think that whole thing was needed. No. Not, not, not at that not, budget. Not when we're pulling social services and sure. closing schools. I right. Mean, really. Needs-based spending, not political spending. Not when that, exactly like you said, that money could have gone to affect so much more change where it was needed, and we were all in Streeterville just fine going down all the way to yeah. where the path was yeah, yeah, and yeah. then starting our runs. We yeah. didn't need a flyover there. Right. When, totally they first, when they first started building that, I, I thought they were kind of, it's right there by, as you're coming Grand. north, and you're coming up by Chicago, and there's always that backup. Right. So I thought they were trying to put a, a flyby, a car flyby, yeah, like a, the, an express the, lane. Yeah, for traffic. Right. I was like, all okay all this for a bike <laughs> so uh second question uh i know i said two and we were talking just moments ago about gun violence which is out of control uh and i don't know if this is something a, a mayor has anything that he or she can do but people get arrested they they go to jail they get released they shoot somebody, they go to jail, they get released, they rob a liquor store, and it's just on and on. You see news stories with people, four, five, six felony convictions, and they're still out there robbing or shooting or doing whatever they're doing. Paul Bauer. How, how, does, that, how does that work? How does that work as far as with the with judges? So it's, it's not just the judges. It's the entirety of the criminal justice system. Okay. We need criminal justice reform. And people don't understand what that means. And, and what it does mean is, first of all, keeping the right people in jail. Yes. But making sure that the wrong people aren't in jail. And there's this, this concept, uh, I guess it's not a concept, there's this dynamic of mass incarceration that we need to have another difficult conversation about. And this includes race because it affects the African-American community. The, the concept of mass incarceration has to do with the failed war on narcotics in this country. And, and I need to be clear, um, we need criminal justice reform to make room in the system for people who commit violent crimes to be kept in jail. We don't need low-level narcotics offenders in jail. We need violent criminals in jail, and that's gonna change the dynamic on the streets here in Chicago. Um, that's not what's happening here in Chicago. What's happening here in Cook County is that the purse strings for the judiciary, the state's attorney, and the sheriff's office, the jail system, are all controlled 
by the Cook County Board President, who imposes her will on those officers, offices to reduce the prison population, basically at all costs. And as a result, violent criminals are getting out of jail. If the prison population was going down and crime was going down at the same time, we'd be in the right place. Right. But as the prison population goes down and crime goes up, we are very clearly in the wrong place. Right. And when I articulated this once before, there was a response from the county that said something to the effect of, well, under this bond program that we implemented, something like 81 or 91% of the individuals who bonded out came back to court. And they are declaring that a success. My question is, what were they doing when they were not in jail? <laughs> right. Right. If you're a criminal, you commit crime. Right. That's what you do for a living. So we have it. We have a misunderstanding of the concept of mass incarceration, and it's a difficult conversation that people need to have. I actually encourage people to read a book uh, called uh, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration. It's written by a woman named Michelle Alexander, who's a, she was, I don't know where she is today. Uh, she might still be a, a professor at Ohio State University. And it talks about the history of incarceration and, and African Americans, and it's something that needs to be addressed. But it needs to be addressed in the proper fashion. Somebody has to go to jail, and it's the gun-carrying shooter who has to go to jail more than anybody else out there. And stay in jail. And stay in jail, absolutely. Yeah. I love that he did a book recommendation, because we always ask for we a book recommendation, ask. but he gave us two. He gave the listeners two. We yeah. have a, was a question that a lot of our viewers wanted was, what do successful people read? Because now we have Audible, and people are in the cars, and people have more access to information. So I love that he gave us um, two good books. Well, my, my, my favorite reading list has to do with historical figures. You know, I, I, one of the better books that I read recently was about Stonewall Jackson. Uh, uh, not because he was with the Confederacy, of course, but because he overcame adversity and basically kicked the Union's butt every time he dealt with them with less equipment, less men, and inferior uh, odds. Um, I read a book about Patton recently that was really, really good. Um, I, I love reading books about people in leadership positions. Uh, I'm, I'm now reading uh, the book about... Uh, Mayor Daly, Senior Mayor Daly, uh, American Pharaoh, which is pretty interesting. But I seem to have narcolepsy. Every time I start reading, I fall right asleep because I'm not getting enough sleep these days. <laughs> How much do you sleep these days? Well, I'm back to having two cell phones and 5 a.m. workouts. I see that you have like a uh, bat phone almost. Yeah, I got, I got two cell phones, and, and I, I'm up at 4.30 to go to the gym at 5 uh, to get back to get my son to daycare and get the day started. Because so my wife has a big career, too. She's you know, an attorney. Between the, t between the two of us, our schedules are virtually impossible, and you throw a two-year-old into the mix, it makes it really interesting. You definitely don't get a lot of sleep. No. You know, a good b book recommendation, if you haven't read it, is um, Extreme Ownership. Okay. It's um, two guys. They are Navy SEAL leaders, um, and uh, I guess they led their uh, their Navy SEAL group, and um, they wrote a book, and it, translate, it translates into business as well. Now they give these business talks. Apparently, they're a quarter million bucks to... Um, to hire on to speak at businesses, but that's a guy named Jocko Wilnick. Got a great podcast too, and um, he's a he's a the extreme ownership book's a great one. Um, so, other than working out in the mornings, what do you do for fun? We always ask this question too. We're always interested to see what. Uh, our I, guests I mean, do for I'm fun. a I'm a sports uh, fanatic. I, I mean, I played four sports in high school. I played two in college. Um, you know, I I love to golf, but that takes up a lot of time now. Yeah. Um, 
my golf game has really gone to garbage over the last few years. Um, but, uh, you know, spending time with, with my kid right now is one of the most fun things that I do. We, uh, my, my wife had to go on a trip uh, the last two days, business trip. So I was like a single parent and uh, sitting around with him in the apartment without, without his mother there to tell me what not to do with him. Uh, we played like two little boys. <laughs> it was really fun. Yeah. I bounced him around. Two's a, two's a fun age. Yeah. yeah. Um, what sports? I know football because you played football through. Yeah. yeah through your 50. Through, through like, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's one of the stupidest, most fun things I ever did. Yeah. Uh, I played for the NYPD at the time. Uh, I played in college. I played baseball in college also. Okay. Um, Cubs, Sox, both? Uh, y- you know, it's hard not to love the Cubs, but I'm a, an American League guy, born and raised in the Bronx. Okay. Obviously, the Yankees were, were my team growing up. And uh, I told Jerry Reinsdorf when I got here, I said, everybody wants me to pick. I said, Jerry, I'm going to pick the White Sox. I said, until you're playing the Yankees. He says, you know what, Gary, I'll take you for 155 games a year. <laughs> and, then, and then I met Joe Madden, and I got to tell you something. The guy just blew my mind. He's just such a, uh, an incredibly forceful personality. And, and when I say forceful, he's, he's, you know, he's not overwhelming. It's just the, the fact that he, he has the ability to make everybody in the room feel important. He's, he's one of those guys. He's got a, he's got a real gift, and I, and I couldn't help but help root, root for the Cubs at the same time. Yeah, so, I mean, I I just love sports. Uh, I, I'm really upset about the Blackhawks right now, the way they're going. Um, Agree. But, you know, if I'm if I'm flipping through the channels and there's a sports event on, I'm I'm watching. You're it. watching it. Yeah. How do you like the Bears this year? Love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. As a matter of fact, I had the opportunity. I met uh, Vic Fangio, and uh, he and I are texting back and forth once in a while. And I congratulated him on his win the other day. I said the defense looks great. He says, "Well, hopefully you're going to win too." Yeah. You know, so. Well, we hope so, too. It's funny. We had Bears tickets. I don't know, John, if I told you this. Jeff and I had uh, season Bears tickets that we'd give away. And last year, we were giving them away, and nobody would take them. They'd say, uh, eh, it's cold. They just give them to somebody else. <laughs> right. So we traded out, and we went and got um, Cubs tickets. And we said, well, we'll give, give away Cubs tickets all year, and then we'll sell our playoff tickets, and we'll make our money back. And then the Cubs didn't make the playoffs. Now the Bears are really good, and we don't have our Bears tickets. <laughs> right. So that's our luck. It happens. Um, we're almost running out of time, and I know you got to run. I can't uh, say this enough i can't appreciate you enough for coming on the show i think it really does prove your point that you want to talk to everybody and anybody in chicago Um, you're obviously a very busy guy you have a lot going on and uh, you're trying to impact a lot of change in chicago john and i like i said we're not abc we're not nbc so for you to take uh, an hour of your time to come and talk to us is a big honor to me and john my pleasure I, i i say it all the time mo i'll talk to anybody any place anytime very nice. Pretty much about anything, too. But. <laughs> the city needs That's an that. Irish thing, though. <laughs> and the city needs that, though. You know, I think, uh, uh, like we said, you're not a politician. You're a public servant. But politicians have made themselves very unaccessible to the average guy like me yeah. or a John. And it's a shame because there's people like the gentleman I spoke about in Inglewood who might have some ideas that well, really can I, make I, a difference. I talk about this. I'm, I'm not going to be inaccessible. I'm going to be out in the neighborhoods talking to people. It's one of my favorite things to do. When I was superintendent, I would go on patrol at least once a week. Just go out on a Friday or Saturday night, work until like 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, out there uh, doing police work with the officers and talking to people on the street. And and that really served me well because I right now I go to places like Roseland or Englewood or, or West Lawndale, and, and people say, oh, we know you were out here. We saw you out here. Yeah. And that makes, that makes a difference to people. 
I think it makes the biggest difference. And I think it, it's obviously what's a million times going to set you apart from the rest of the candidates. I think Chicago needs a guy who's going to give a crap about Chicago and its people and also has, uh, we'll call it the moxie again, to actually make <laughs> the decisions uh, that Chicago really needs because we are going off that cliff. And uh, even last week, like I said, I was on vacation and to hear somebody halfway across the world say, I don't want to come to Chicago because it's full of crime. Um, and I love the city. I know John does. And I know you guys in the uh, in the room do as well. Um, we're very hopeful that uh, come February, you're the winner. Um, for everybody listening, GaryForMayor.com. I know, John, I've been watching you put it uh, at the banner down below. Um, John and I want to be a part of whatever you guys are doing. People listening and uh, texting and saying this was a great show. Um, people are texting, best of luck on your campaign. Pulling for you from Arizona. Somebody just commented. Um, Go on GaryForMayor.com, um, help them out. There's abilities to donate your time. There's abilities to donate funds, to fundraise. Um, help this guy out. Chicago really, really, really needs a guy like him um, to make the changes we need because we have an amazing city that's going in the really wrong direction. Wrong direction. And uh, it sucks. But thank you again. Thanks, I mean, it this this pleasure. has been very cool for John and I. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I mean, it really is an honor to us. And uh, it, again, it proves the point that you give a crap about people like John and I and just the average person in Chicago because um, our little podcast just got uh, Gary McCarthy on it. Well, I like to think that I'm just an average guy too, so it kind of works for me. Well, we appreciate your time. Thank you. We don't want to keep you. you. you got to run. So thank you so much. Thanks, and everybody Thanks, else, John. 3 o'clock Wednesday next week, we'll be back on. In three, two.